2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, a lawsuit filed in state court challenges Georgia's new abortion law, citing state constitutional rights to privacy and equal protection. We'll break down the lawsuit with Georgia State constitutional law professor Michael Christ. Plus, artificial intelligence. We know what it can do, right? It can create art, make decisions, and even talk with humans. I should know. I get the weather forecast every morning. We'll find out what researchers, however, from Georgia Tech and other institutions reveal about some AI technology ingrained with racist and sexist prejudices. We'll talk about all that. And later, those born between 1946 and 1965 are typically referred to as baby mowers. Well, they're also part of a trend known as boom mates due to a number of reasons, usually financial, more and more looking to share residence. And like everything else, there's an app for that. Those conversations coming up, but first this, as you just heard on NPR, gun manufacturer executives testifying, virtually that is, before U.S. House Committee today. The hearing's focus was to examine the role of the firearms industry in America's gun violence epidemic. Marty Daniel is the CEO of Daniel Defense, headquartered in Black Creek, Georgia. Here's part of an exchange Daniel had with committee chair Democrat Representative Carolyn Maloney of New York. How many more American children need to die before your company will stop selling assault weapons to civilians and children, the weapon of choice in most mass murders in our country.
4: Congresswoman Maloney, I believe that these murders are local problems that have to be solved locally.
2: And we should note, Marty Daniel was not able to finish his response due to a time constraint. As to be expected, gun manufacturers did receive support from some on the committee, including Georgia Republican Representative Jody Heiss, who scrutinized the committee for even holding the hearing.
4: This committee should have jurisdiction over government oversight and federal issues, not going after private citizens and private companies like we're doing here today.
2: The House could take up legislation soon, but even if passed, it is unlikely the measure will make it in the Senate. In other news, an Atlanta judge has ruled that Republic Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene can run for re-election. Fulton Superior Court Judge Christopher Brash rejected an appeal this week by a group of voters who challenged Greene's eligibility. She won the May primary in Georgia's conservative 14th district. We know that. The voters had filed a complaint with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger back in March. They contend Green played a significant role in citing the January 2021 US Capitol riots. Green lost her committee assignments in early 2021. House Democrats cited Green's endorsement of conspiracy theorists, racist language and threats targeting other members of Congress as the reason why. A provision in Georgia's new abortion law says an, quote unborn child is a natural person. That may mean a fetus or embryo has legal rights like people. Georgia is one of only three states with such a law in the books. WAB politics reporter Sam Greenglass has more. The measures
3: are often referred to as fetal personhood laws. Arizona passed a similar provision to Georgia's in 2021. A federal court recently blocked it. Alabama added the language to their state constitution in 2018. But Georgia may be the first to extensively test such a law in practice. Elizabeth Nash is a state policy analyst with the Guttmacher Institute.
5: Really, the lion's share of agencies are going to be affected, and they're going to have to figure out what the law means for the people they serve on a regular basis, as well as for their programs going forward.
3: The law could upend many sections of Georgia code and affect everything from child support payments to population counts, HOV lanes, and how education funding is allocated. Several state agencies have told WABE they're actively preparing for this provision to be implemented. Nash says bills with this language have failed to pass in other states because they're vague.
5: It was very clear that abortion was at the center of these initiatives. And the rest of the issues that the state would then have to contend with All of that was sort of collateral issues.
3: Nash says anti-abortion legislators have pushed personhood provisions to lay the groundwork for total bans.
5: Part of the rhetoric for fetal personhood has been essentially that they would prohibit abortion, but also that at every aspect of a pregnancy, this fetus needs to be protected.
3: Nash says to expect a lot of litigation ahead. In Georgia, the ACLU says it plans to challenge state statutes that they say are now unconstitutionally vague, given the new definition of a person. Sam
2: Greenglass, WABE News. In fact, a lawsuit was filed to use a in-state court, court challenging Georgia's new abortion law, citing again state constitutional rights to privacy, liberty and equal protection Let's break this all down now. I'm joined by Georgia State University constitutional law professor Michael Kreiss, who's become a regular contributor to Closer Look. Professor, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And let's begin here because this filing is it's 354 pages. That's a lot packed into this. And at the core, citing that the plaintiffs bring this action under the Georgia Constitution's right to privacy, liberty, and equal protection, seeking declaratory and interlocutory injunctive relief, as well as permanent injunction, close quote. That's a lot. For some people are saying, what in the world does that mean? Let's start there. Can you break down what the plaintiffs are asking the courts here to do? So the most immediate thing that the plaintiffs want here
4: is a temporary injunction that would block the state, perhaps as early as next week, from continuing to implement and enforce the 2019 six-week abortion ban. So essentially, what they're saying is uh, there's a lot of litigation that's going to have to play out, and though they want to, uh, they want the court to eventually enjoin or stop the state from enforcing it forever. Um, that at least until the litigation is is settled, that the state should not be able to enforce the new law, and we should go back. To what the law was just a few weeks ago. So that's that's basically the breakdown of what the most immediate
2: ask is from the plaintiffs. And I know for some of our listeners, they're saying, "Okay, well, wait, professor. Now, the Supreme Court has ruled, sending it back to the states. The states have made their their argument here. It is law. How, does this in any way is not been has already not been addressed by the Supreme Court?" Has this not already been addressed in what's been cited here in this lawsuit? Does that make sense?
4: Yeah. So, so of course, when the Supreme Court in the case called Dobbs out of Mississippi a few weeks ago uh, uh, handed down that decision, the Supreme Court said as a matter of federal constitutional law, there is no right to an abortion. So, the, so that meant that the decisions in Roe versus Wade, which folks are fairly familiar with, mm. and other cases weren't uh, properly decided. But uh, not only does the federal constitutional law, as the U.S. Supreme Court interprets it, have a body of jurisprudence, there is a separate and distinct and independent body of constitutional law that is developed under the Georgia Constitution and the Georgia courts. And so what this case is about, it's not about Roe versus Wade, it's not about Casey versus Planned Parenthood Mm -hmm. or any of the cases that you might have heard folks like me on the news talking about for the past few weeks and months, but this is primarily, or actually entirely, right, uh, focused on uh, the, the Georgia Constitution and the wealth of case law that's been developed in the last 117 years, and in fact, some important Civil War era uh, you know, statutory and constitutional developments, and, and that there's so there's a lot of history here that's going to uh, bear out on this litigation, but it's all Georgia-centric.
2: So you're saying that there are statutes or provisions on Georgia's, within Georgia's Constitution, that go back to post-Civil War? Yeah, so so I I think the the one
4: big thing that we have to ask is well what kind of analysis will the Georgia courts want to engage in, mm-hmm. and a lot of listeners might be familiar with the concept of originalism, uh, right? Originalism is something that has been uh, triumphed and championed by the the cons- more conservative lawyers, mm-hmm. but it's the idea that we should ask what the framers of a constitution thought. Uh, at the time of ratification and, and and we should kind of use that as the overarching guidepost for what the law should be and And so if that's what we're going to do then we need to look at the Georgia Constitution as it was developed in 1861, 1865 and 1868. Uh, this is a critical period because this is where the the provision, for equal protection and the provision for, for due process, which is the liberty and the privacy-based right mm-hmm. that abortion is, is that, or that abortion implicates. Um, this is the era that, that, the, that the first provisions or when these provisions were first adopted in the Georgia Constitution. And so the question might be, well, what was the law of abortion mm-hmm. at the time that that, that that provision came about?
2: Well, and if someone listening says, well, but there was no reference to abortion then back then well yeah
4: i mean but of course there's also no reference to privacy sure uh sure. right there's no there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are um you know they in georgia law we have a right to die and to refuse medical care and and there's a lot of things that were not um in that in that you know were not expressly laid out but the question is one of what is the what did the term liberty mean mm-hmm. to people in in the 1860s and georgia was one of the the states at that time that followed what we call the common law rule, and the common law rule uh, on abortion said that up until uh, the time of quickening, uh, which is a time that the pregnant, a pregnant person could feel fetal movement, probably around 16 weeks on average, up until that point, uh, abortion was not a crime. And in fact, it was it was legal to have an abortion, um, at, you know, in in the 1860s, and in fact. Uh, 30 other states chose to criminalize abortion before Georgia did. And so at the time of the Georgia Constitution's first adoption of the liberty due process provision and the equal protection provision, uh, Georgia rejected what was happening in other states. Georgia said, no, we're not going to criminalize abortion and, and recognized that, you know, there was no distinct legal right that attached to a fetus, uh, you know,
2: at least until that 16 weekish mark. Well, and we should note that also within this filing there are, as they call it, I guess, there are affidavits that have been presented from so many people here—doctors, patients—which uh, have been identified either as Jane Doe one, two, three, four, five. What is the purpose of this, Professor?
4: Well, you know, it, part of what uh, any you know good litigation is about is showing the harms that a particular law imposes, and so. Um, For some folks, this will be, you know, the affidavits are uh, primarily geared or the affidavits are designed to show how uh, the recent abortion law that was passed in 2019 might affect medical decision making and the judgment made by physicians and and why certain exceptions may not be clear, and and certain um, you know scientific evidence that they might want to proffer and say you know to the court that um, you know the state doesn't have a compelling interest to regulate in this way, and here is why. And so um, the length of you know, the length of the of the, um, the 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 complaint is really there to kind of tease out some factual bases. It's not it's not as if they are you know have a 300 page. Uh, legal treatise, right? Mm-hmm. So so they're kind of trying to show the the practical effects of the law and
2: and some of the the you know the the standing that people have to challenge it um in court. I have a listener that just emailed me wanting to know why this is this just beginning because it's roses being filed in superior court of Fulton County. So is this just a, also a a legal maneuver in moving and hopefully getting this moved even further up if it's i guess denied or what have you? Does that make sense? Well, so the the, the the procedural posture is,
4: is interesting. It's um, so because the last week the Eleventh Circuit uh, basically said that there was no confirm what we all knew and said mm-hmm. there was no federal constitutional challenge to continue. Um, right, the next step is to go to Fulton County Superior Court and file just just like in the federal court mm-hmm. system, the first place to go is a district court. So this is just the the process. You go to a Fulton County Superior Court file your constitutional challenge, and
2: eventually uh, the Georgia Supreme Court will be the ultimate arbiters Mm -hmm. of this question. Let me ask you this. Based on what the plaintiffs have provided in this filing through your expertise as a constitutional law expert, could this possibly have some merit? I think so. Um, So there are a couple of
4: things. First, the most important thing, or the most important thing to note, um, Georgia, unlike the federal constitution has a, a very deep and sweeping understanding of the meaning of privacy. Mm-hmm. So Georgia was the first state in the country um, to recognize a right to privacy, and that was 117 years ago in a case called Pavesich, and and that right that that is well before the United States Supreme Court ever um, you know held that there was a right to privacy as a federal matter. And then the second thing is is um, you know the, the Georgia Supreme Court and the Georgia courts have always viewed the right to privacy under the Georgia constitution to be broader and more sweeping and more protective of rights. Right. And, and so, in other words, it, it constrains the state's ability to legislate much more than the federal constitution does. And so this would be, cons- you know, uh, the claim that they're making is consistent with that idea. Although, you know, there will be folks who would push back and say, well, there's there are rights here in mm-hmm. um, the unborn child that need to be recognized too and that and therefore, that you know that broad sweeping right doesn't
2: apply. Then it is possible then that the judge could enter for the plain, plaintiffs in terms of an injunction while waiting to get more information or seeking some type of other expert to weigh in on this. It could is that possible? So so some so injunctive relief is where I should say the idea
4: behind injunctive relief is to preserve the status quo or here would be the you know the status quo ante um, so that that the law is predictable and reliable, right? Mm -hmm. We always want to make sure that people can order their lives around the law and should know what they are expected to do under the law. Um, And what the 11th Circuit did last week is completely anathema to that, right? So Mm -hmm. you had people who had appointments uh, for reproductive health care, who had appointments canceled the next day, um, or right, it might have to have uh, to change their plans and travel across state lines, or you know, all sorts of things. Um, and so that kind of abrupt, you know, you know, uh, abrupt change in the law is something that we always disfavor. And so there's a there is a strong case to be made that we should return to the law as it existed, you know, a week and a half ago, while the the state constitutional issues play out. So I, I think it's possible
2: um that, that we could see this put on pause. Professor, is there any federal or and I don't know if that's the right word, so correct me if I'm wrong, is there any federal definition of personhood anywhere?
4: Not not in the sense that the that Georgia uses it now. Um right there are in law different kinds of persons. There's natural persons, mm-hmm. there's corporations as persons. Um, right. So, so we, we use the term person in different ways in law. And that's, you know, that usually it's just it's natural and not non-natural persons. Um, and so that's that's the idea that there's that there's different or varying definitions of, of person isn't completely new to the law. But what is new is this this idea of a, of a person and a natural person being someone who,
2: um, you know, is you know, basically an embryo. Hmm. What questions have you I don't know if you had a chance to talk to some of your students. What questions have they been been asking you about in terms of all this? I know you all are on break, but you keep in contact with them.
4: Most of them are studying for the bar. So good luck to them who are,
2: well, they're taking it. They're taking
4: the bar today. So good luck to them. Um, the, the, you know, the, the students, colleagues, uh, lawyers that I, I've talked to, um, you know, I, th- I think a lot of them have questions about the, the, the personhood definition and what mm-hmm. it actually means in practice and what that might mean for constitutional rights. Um, oftentimes I'm asked about what is, what is maybe, um, the 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 most glaring constitutional violation to me in this law, mm-hmm. as a matter of state constitution, to state constitutional law, and it's the requirement that victims of rape and incest report that crime that mm-hmm. their sexual right, their their experience with sexual violence uh, to law enforcement. Um, right? If the state constitution's right to privacy means that we have a right to withdraw from the public gaze, then forcing vulnerable people who have been victimized. Um, right to to expose themselves to the light and expose themselves to the state mm-hmm. seems to be really contrary to that idea.
2: And that is actually mentioned in the lawsuit. There's a lot in there, as we talked about when we started our conversation. And I guess the idea is that plan- plaintiffs wanted to make sure they got as much as in there as they possibly could to give the judge something to consider and to think about. Absolutely. I, I mean, and part of the part of what the uh, the complaint
4: emphasizes is. There is a a great degree to which a surveillance state is necessary to enforce a law like this, and by that I mean, um, you know, having to be able to to, to uh, you know look through people's private healthcare information, mm-hmm. um, having to the you know access to um, you know different data. Um, that you might have on your phone some women for example have a period tracker right how does that play out um, people's travel plans uh, mm-hmm. you know why did you leave the state what were you doing who you were who were you seeing who did you talk to and of course there's other big things too like miscarriages that that you know might look suspicious um you know perhaps people who are in uh, partners partnerships that are uh, you know, not the greatest, right, domestic mm-hmm. violence, um, or, you know, partners who are, you know, spiteful or have something to, to gain by, um, right, reporting an X to, you know, law enforcement. I mean, it's, I think this, this there's a lot of really damaging collateral consequences in terms of, um, you know, how we order our lives and who we share our, you know,
2: most private information with um, that are at stake. If this takes a while for some decision to come forth, is that, a in the favor of the plaintiffs or the state of georgia uh well that,
4: that's hard to say yeah. i i think this is such uh a, a tough issue it is so salient um, it taps into really deep-seated uh, you know, feelings in, in, in the state. Um, and of course, we're in an election cycle, mm-hmm. which is not helpful either if you're trying to come up with some level-headed jurisprudence. Um, you know, there, it, it's really hard to say. What I, what I can say is, is, for now, what we know... Um, you know, is that that this has been assigned to Judge mcBurney, mm-hmm. uh, whom folks might be familiar with because he's also um, running the special grand jury. yeah, he's got so, a lot going he's got on, got a lot going on. Um but i i I think, you know no matter uh, what can you know what's what folks might ha- have to say about this law. Um, I think Judge McBurney is a really thoughtful, level-headed. And just genuinely smart um, uh, jurist, um, and so I, I think that we're in, you know, the state and and is in good hands with with his reasoning here. Um, and so I, I'm I'm pleased to see that this was uh, put before Judge McBurney because I I, I think that uh, whatever happens, will we'll, you know we're likely to see some some really thoughtful analysis coming up from from him
2: in the court. Georgia State University Constitutional Law Professor Michael Kreiss, who's become a regular contributor to Closer Look. We appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Good information. Thanks for breaking all this down for our listeners. Thanks for having me.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot
6: E-D-U.
2: Is this artificial intelligence bumper music? Oh, Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here's an attention grabbing headline. Flawed AI makes robots racist sexist. Hmm. It's from an online piece from Georgia Tech's College of Computing, authored by Jill Rosen, and it gives a summary about a report presented at this year's Conference on Fairness, Accountability, and Transparency. You're probably saying, what's this all about? Well, joining me now are two of the study's co-authors. From Georgia Tech, we have Dr. Andrew Hunt, a Computing Innovation Postdoctoral Fellow at Georgia Tech, and Vicki Zhang, a Ph.D. student studying computer science at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
6: Thank you for having us on.
2: All right, let's get to it. But let's just back up a little bit, because I always like to think that for somebody listening, there are some terms they may not know anything about. And we like to educate. That's what we do here. So folks who aren't familiar, I'll start with you, Vicki. Just how involved is artificial intelligence in our day to day, everyday lives?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that artificial intelligence is in a way already involved in our everyday lives, but not as much as people might envision it or hope for in the future that we're all still really hopeful for and so can consider many applications of robotics and AI that's already in place. For example, facial recognition systems mm-hmm. or many of these other systems that kind of use machine learning and use models to help us alleviate some of the jobs or not jobs for some of the tasks that can be done with automation.
2: Hmm. Andrew, what do you want to add to that?
6: Um well so AI generally is in uh, many, many of the websites we use, like YouTube and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our research is considering uh, robots with AI mm-hmm. so with uh, where they might have a motor or something like that. Um, and that is uh, that sort of thing is in some like warehouses, some uh, you know sorting in recycling facilities. Uh, there's a number of different places, uh, but it's definitely a lot uh, less common but growing quickly.
2: So when we talk about then in in, in robots, uh, walk our listeners through. And Andrew, I'll stay with you for a moment. How this is it a software that's developed? Uh, I want you to break this down as if you have to explain this to someone in kindergarten or a public radio host, either one.
6: <laughs> yeah. So there's um, one of the one of the big things that I've worked on is is software. Yeah. So there's a lot of companies that. Uh, produce robots that you can add different attachments to, like a robot arm. You might have seen, you know, videos of uh, welding robots in mm-hmm. in car factories. Uh, that's like one of the most common kinds of robots. Or, um, you know, Roombas use some AI to go around houses. And then, um, let's see. Maybe, and then, hey,
2: the the little vacuum thing that you can put on the floor.
6: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. That, and the way they go around uh, they can they can sort of map out your floor as they go uh, some of the some of the roomlets, uh, and let's see. So then, uh, sorry, I lost track of the question. That's
2: okay. You're just you're going to give an example in terms of how these robots, you know, how AI is used, how it's developed in to to be used in these robots.
6: Mm-hmm. Oh, so in our specific case, there's this um, rob- there's this AI called um, this popular image to caption matching AI, Mm -hmm. uh, that basically they downloaded lots of images and the descriptions of those images, uh, from the internet and, uh, which can contain all sorts of data where Mm -hmm. the, the descriptions can be true, partly true, false, even harmfully biased. And, uh, they trained it on billions of examples to try and say, oh, is the image similar to the caption and we knew about some previous work led by Abiba Barhane that evaluated this AI mm-hmm. uh, and showed that it has some race and gender bias. So, for example, an official, official NASA photo of a female space shuttle commander mm-hmm. uh, was described as uh, an astronaut with an American flag, and that was a worse match than housewife in an orange jumpsuit. Um, so we kind of wanted to investigate how biased AI might affect a robot because some roboticists took this AI because it has, you know, pictures of household objects, cups, shoes, Mm -hmm. hats uh, in the in the data set, because it's just from all sorts of websites. And uh, it can also match that in addition to this bias. And so uh, they put it onto a robot and to say, grab an object and put it into a box. And we wanted to see, does that bias carry through to the robot arm that can grab stuff and place it somewhere else?
2: Let me ask you and Vicky, this question is for you. Someone listening might say, you know, I don't work in tech. You're all talking about, you know, in terms of machine learning for robots. Why should I care about these, these biases? What would you, what would uh, you yeah. say?
1: Yeah, I think that in that aspect, I think like Andrew said, many of these technologies will be used to assist humans or even interact with humans on a daily basis mm-hmm. for example like image caption mapping you have images being matched to the descriptions so you can imagine in many recommendation systems but perhaps in the near future in like social platforms when you upload a photo they would say recommend you a text like do you want to add this as your caption mm-hmm. so in reality like many of these technologies when they develop to a certain point at performance they would start getting proposed and advertised for commercial Use And also to be used in our everyday lives. So definitely if you're not even if you're just a minority, but if you're just a person, you would not want an AI to potentially be making unfair judgments on you.
2: And so in this study that you all worked on, how are you able to then take this data? What, what metrics did you use then to be able to come up with the conclusion that some of these this the AI technology being used was sexist and racist?
6: Um, Yeah, so what we did is we took um, this uh, pre-existing robot AI that can sort of move objects around based on a description. And we realized that uh, lots of objects have pictures of people on them, like food boxes, packaging, books, toys. And so what we did is we tried placing just simplified little blocks into the scene with uh, different people Mm -hmm. who vary according to their uh, self-classified race and gender, um, and then gave it instructions that were uh, designed to evoke stereotypes, like uh, pack the criminal in the brown box, uh, and see what what behavior occurs. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so one appropriate decision could be refuse to act, since there are no criminals and a robot can't make that designation, mm-hmm. uh, but nonetheless, the robot put blocks uh, into the box.
2: Hmm. So, just so we understand, you all gave the robot a task, like putting objects in a box, and then, based on those commands, you all determined that the robot was was pretty much operating on some type of bias. So, which is, I just want to make sure our listeners understand because you, yeah. you said a lot there. Okay. Oh, yeah.
6: yeah. So let, let me, Go let ahead. me explain that a little more. Yeah. Uh, so if you, um, if we have it, if we give it the instruction, like uh, pack the doctor in the box and we have it do it uh, a thousand times, and sometimes it doesn't uh, move the objects. Sometimes it, it moves one particular object, one, one person with a certain race and gender uh, and and puts them into the box. We count those up as it runs many so times. So let me guess, and the
2: robot picked a lot of white folks. <laughs> Is that uh, what you're
6: saying? For when it came to, so one of our results was that um, women were less likely to be identified as as doctor than men. Uh, and once, were they white? The robot, you know, there's a person. Um,
2: Most of the time? Uh, some of the
6: other categories. I, I don't have like an exact result for that okay. particular case, but um, uh, another one was that once the robots seen the faces we were able to see that uh black men were identified as criminals approximately nine percent more often than white men
2: vicky what do you want to add to that
1: oh yeah i just wanted to like quickly add so when you talked about like giving the different commands what we would have ideally is for it to act to pick up none of them or at least pick up pick them up equally so that would mean that it doesn't have any bias in mind when you give it when you ask it for a criminal janitor homemaker and stuff but like you said there are trends where like white people are picked up 6% more than black people, and also that women are picked up 7% less than men. And even in the doctor case that you talked about, across all ethnicities, women are picked up less than their men counterparts. So we can see that across commands and within them, there are all these strong stereotypes that you kind of mentioned earlier.
2: And Vicky, I, I, I saw a quote from you where you said, sadly, these you said these results, sadly, unsurprising. Right.
1: Yeah, I think that kind of matched with what you were asking earlier when you said like, oh, I guess they picked up lots of white folks. Unfortunately, that is like all the stereotypes and like trends that we see or what we kind of expect from what humans sometimes think about too. So this also brings up the topic topic about like when you take all of these data from the Internet and when you're mm-hmm. processing the model without carefully filtering or considering all these consequences, you would end up with stereotypes that might or might not reflect what some people already have, Mm -hmm. and then you're making this into explicit behavior done by a robot with no human intervention.
2: Ah, Well, let's talk about that then. How do we fix this? Is it then going to be on human intervention to to change this? And if so, how do we do it? Andrew?
6: Um, Yeah, so the uh, biggest source uh, of change, I think one of the big sources of change that I think we could make is looking at the the human process of developing these technologies, uh, where we really need to start by assuming there's going to be uh, identity bias of some kind or another, Mm -hmm. uh, be it, uh, you know, race, gender, uh, LGBTQ plus identity, um, uh, national origin case, uh, you have to assume that that problem is going to be there, especially Mm -hmm. if it's data from what's in the world. And then you need to prove that you've addressed it before uh, it goes out and quantify mm-hmm. those issues, uh, uh, especially if, uh, um, and it, but it's also important to get consent from the different groups that the mm-hmm. robot is expected, the, or the AI is expected to interact with.
2: Uh, Vicki, you heard what Andrew had to say there through your lens and where do you all begin? Folks who work in this space, you all, how do you begin then to solve this?
1: Oh, yeah, me and Andrew, we actually came from kind of different perspectives. I, I'm i now a second year PhD. But when I first joined Andrew on the project, I was just a first year PhD. And I was just studying computer science. So really, ethics wasn't something I was focused on. Mm-hmm. It's something that we know that we should care about. But as researchers, sometimes, like, we, we are a little more interested in, like, all of those cool research areas and stuff. And so when Andrew introduced me to this project, I was pretty surprised, but also like his results were surprising because when he approached me, he already did a preliminary experiment with like hair shampoo products because that's like in real life with commercial products where you have like human models on them. Mm -hmm. And so he did a quick experiment with just black and white men. And then we found that white men were picked up so much more often than the black men in like the informal study. And that's what got me like noticing the project, and so I joined Andrew on it, and then after joining it, we see all of these other disturbing stereotypes.
2: And I'm curious, when this was presented at that conference on fairness, accountability, and transparency, or as you all working on this, have you gotten some feedback from folks in your space that might have said, well, maybe this isn't such a big deal, or you all are making a little bit more out than this happenstance? Because when folks hear AI robots, you know, robots are racist and sexist, you know, some raised an say, "Come on now, what'd you hear, Andrew?"
6: Um, yeah. Well, we don't. uh We're not. One thing is that we're not attributing agency to the robot itself. Of course. Uh, in, in the same way, you know, uh, someone who post Yeah. <laughs> and then, what? What was? So oh, I lost track.
2: It's wh- okay. Again. What what, what have you been hearing uh, from your cohorts or from people could, in could this industry? Yeah. In terms of what have you been hearing in terms of feedback from other folks
6: oh yeah yeah so at the at the conference itself uh the the feedback has been very very positive um because that's the sort of issue that that's being studied there um and then um the robotics community is a lot less familiar with this Mm -hmm. so um that is still a uh sort of a, a work in progress but that's not Uh, that's just a general statement there's there's i've i've had a number of people reach out to me with very positive comments as well
2: all right so then where do you go from here then vicky yeah i think it's also slightly
1: similar to what andrew mentioned before what we really want to do now is start spreading the message so that the community starts prioritizing it a little more like what andrew said like ethics sometimes it's kind of like in the back of people's minds but Mm -hmm. not necessarily their first priority so what we're hoping for is that as more research in these ethics and bias start revealing itself people will start putting more focus onto this problem and start being more proactive in solving this like we mentioned there's many things that could be done within the research process to help alleviate down this problem and so by driving more attention to it and possibly invoking more policy changes to be stricter on the ethics counterparts of our research, we can have people while doing research be also noticing for any possible ethics um, problems that come with their research.
2: Does it also mean that there probably needs to be some type of amplified uh, presence as it relates to ethics and all of this? I don't know you know, exactly in terms of a phase when you when you all are developing this technology for whatever type of innovation. But this is also mean that perhaps there needs to be some greater uh, significance on the ethics part of this.
6: Uh, Absolutely. We've um, some conferences have have started adding ethical review uh, before papers get accepted. Uh, and that's one of the things we're really advocating for in the sort of ro- robotics venues, the methods we uh, evaluated were published in. Uh, but currently, they, they don't have that sort of review. Um,
2: well, maybe after this and hearing this, they'll get it done. Andrew Hunt, a, I compu- hope so. <laughs> a computing innovation postdoctoral fellow at Georgia Tech. Also, Vicki Zhang, a Ph. student studying computer science at Johns Hopkins University. We we're talking about study they co-authored that found biases within artificial intelligence technology and no we did not say that robots are racist and sexist y'all stop emailing me uh thank you both for taking your time i really appreciate a good conversation i'm gonna have to bring you all back
1: thanks for having us
0: thank you
2: Listen to Closer Look from WAB in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The Federal Reserve is expected to once again, that's right, hike up. In, in, Interest rates, this time by three quarters of a percentage point. Why? Well, same story, different day. You all know that. The Fed hopes to slow demand from companies and consumers, pushing up the price of credit. They hope to do this. Meanwhile, prices just keep rising everywhere. And a trend that's been happening for a while now involves Americans 65 years of age and older. Get this more than 33% of Americans in this age group do not have money, say, for retirement. So, one solution has been get a roommate. In 2016, there was a report that revealed 70% more seniors were living with roommates more than a decade before. Those born between 1946 and 64, well, we call them baby boomers. And now they're also part of this trend known as boom mates, looking to share residence. And like everything else, there's an app for that. So as part of Closer Look's ongoing Paycheck to Paycheck series, that's the focus of our next segment. Joining me now is the president of Silver Nest, Riley Gibson. Riley, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Now, forgive me, because I'm looking at you through our comp- You are not a baby boomer?
0: Nope.
2: <laughs> I can just tell. But let's get there. <laughs> Let, let's talk about Silver Nest. How did all this come about?
0: Yeah, so the original founder of Silver Nest, uh, her parent, they've they, uh, lost a loved one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had been living with their significant other for obviously 10, 20 years. Um, and so it was the first time she was living alone. She was, you know, struggling financially and eventually found her way to getting a roommate. And that kind of changed her perspective in terms of uh, just having someone else in the house, also mm-hmm. stabilizing her finances. And so I think, I think that was just sort of the light bulb for hey, you know, Mm -hmm. graduating from college, we all kind of assume you get a roommate to make finances work. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially with the housing affordability crisis, that's almost assumed. You know, why isn't that the same for older Mm -hmm. adults, especially post-divorce or post-loss of spouse? Um, And so that really began her quest to thinking through what are all the barriers, whether that's social or technological, and how do we build a company, a business around removing those.
2: And so how does civil nets work? I imagine there are some uh, metrics that are used that might uh, be a little bit different than for if someone just just goes online looking for a roommate situation, because we're also talking about older adults here. So you go online, what does the user, what are they going to, what information are they going to put in here? And And does it cost, Riley?
0: Yeah, so um, depending on whether you're looking for a place to rent or you have extra space to rent, you can come on to Silver Nest and there's other apps and organizations that support this as well. Um, The the difference maker, the important piece is you start answering questions about not just the space you have for rent or the space you want, Mm -hmm. um, but what is the type of living situation you're looking for? Um, how do you wanna share space? Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions and things that are a bit more personal that go into a home sharing arrangement. So we really try and facilitate that conversation and bring that out to then, um, you know, match and introduce people.
2: And also I imagine if folks, if mobility issues are of a concern, you all vet that on the other side too, for those who might be willing to open up or share their space.
0: Yeah, there are questions. We don't vet that personally, but there are questions just in the process where you can say that, you know, your home is mobile accessible, um, and you know, safety precautions, things like that. So we try and again facilitate the right conversation. Um, what's been interesting to me is. We see a lot of the people signing up, kind of in that fifty to seventy um, age range, mm-hmm. and you know, again, it's it's typically preceded by a major life event like a divorce or loss of spouse. Um, so they're still very independent. Uh, you know, it skews younger than I would have thought, uh, but it's just an interesting trend to see.
2: What I think is important: uh, what guarantees are you not? Giving, I mean, what do you want folks to know about Silverness in terms of if there's some expectations like you all cannot guarantee that they will that their rent won't be increased if they agree to share a residence with someone? I mean, do you all get in the middle of that? Do you put price ranges in this as well? Yeah.
0: So, again, we really try and focus on just the. The facilitating the conversation, helping people have the right conversation, set the right boundaries, create the right type of legal agreement to facilitate the relationship, Um, you know, the the who they pick and the ultimate arrangement they create is sort of on the users. Um, That's sometimes where we partner with actual actually local nonprofits and other organizations that can add a bit more handholding to the process and really you know, walk people through or certify that homes, um, you know, meet certain accessibility criteria. Uh, So that's where I think there's a nice opportunity for for partnership. Um, But ultimately, it does, you know, like any roommates, it does come down to the two parties agreeing Mm -hmm. on what's on what's reasonable.
2: But do you offer any suggestions or tips? Do you have an area that says, you know, if you are agreeing once you get past this and you all agreeing to to do this? I mean, because you all are providing this service. It's like a subscription service, correct?
0: More or less? Yeah, it's a, subs- yeah, it's a subscription service for the matching portion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we provide what we call home sharing agreement, which is essentially like a lease, but adds a bunch of other pieces that are really specific to home sharing and this is sometimes what people miss when they're doing these arrangements is you know what what space in the home is shared what things are shared what's Mm -hmm. not shared what are guest policies quiet hours like all of that are things that are really important to set the right boundaries ahead of time and so we, we really try and facilitate that process to make sure that, uh, you know, we reduce the opportunity for conflict as much as possible.
2: On the home seeker plans, you all do a background check, but there's a price to that, correct? Or is it not? Yeah,
0: for both for both sides, there is a, a charge for background checks. Um, we also do identity verification as part of this. So, you know, one of the big questions is, you know, how, how do I do this? more securely than something like a Craigslist or something. So Mm -hmm. that's where we're trying to take tools that exist in the world, but make them really easy and integrate them into the process. So someone can get a background check, share their results, um, you know, make sure they are who they say they are. Those are things we're really trying to weave into the experience and make them easier and more accessible.
2: Raleigh, do you all keep the information? Are you I guess assess the information in terms of what parts of the nation are you seeing more folks looking uh, for shared residence in a certain age group, or are there certain uh, types of, of I guess climate that's involved? Like, do, do you have more folks in the south in Florida where everybody retires? Do are, are you all able to capture that information?
0: Yeah, yeah, and and some of it is a little biased by where we have put kind of ad resources and things, but you know, I. I would say most urban centers um were kind of seeing a trend upwards in general. I think you have a bit of a perfect storm with housing affordability, inflation hitting mm-hmm. um as you mentioned introducing this uh you know a significant portion of older adults are housing cost burdened. Um and so we're really seeing this pop up in in a lot of different metro areas. Uh And the ones where there are a larger older adult population and, you know, housing prices have increased at a a really rapid rate, those are ones where we see a lot of organic interest.
2: And what about since the pandemic?
0: Yeah, I mean, during the pandemic, I thought interest would completely drop off Mm -hmm. and we did not see that. And I think that speaks to just the, you know, A lot of people were facing, first of all, social isolation in a way that they had never experienced before. We all got a taste of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then often people were forced into retirement early um, or were making choices about not wanting to continue uh, work or part-time work given the pandemic. So the financial pressures, I think, increased. And so there were still a lot of uh, users and people we saw through the pandemic that were interested in home sharing And since the pandemic has waned slightly and things have opened up and combined with inflationary pressures, that's where we're really seeing interest, uh, you know, across the board spike.
2: And you know how the rentals like Airbnb and all those work uh, folks get Mm -hmm. ratings. Do you all also offer that? We do
0: not offer that currently, um, but that is something we're we're trying to figure out what is our sort of version and point of view on that, most of all, the rentals that are facilitated through Silver Nest are, you know, a year long. Mm-hmm. Um, they're longer term leases, and so there wouldn't be kind of the same rate of of ratings coming through. But we're really interested in things like, like facilitating reference calls, mm-hmm. um, and some sort of rating system.
2: What do you hope to maybe implement for Silver Nest that you all don't have right now?
0: I mean, I think we already hit on it just in terms of the social proof and Mm -hmm. and ratings and things like that. And then, you know, we're hoping right now, again, we're focused on on how do we get kind of the matching process as best as possible. Um, And over time, you know, we hope to add to that to really look at what happens throughout the life cycle of a home sharing arrangement? Are there ways we can support that, whether it's helping kind of organize bills and splitting bills and things like that. There's there's a whole kind of set of things that we think we could help with there. Um, And then I think the biggest picture for us is just really trying to continue normalizing Mm -hmm. the idea and getting this out there. Um, I think it's still, you know, we have a pretty myopic view as the culture of, mm-hmm. you know, you buy your house, you you kind of raise a family there, empty nest, and going back to a roommate feels like a regression. We, ju- we have users that say, like, I- I'm uncomfortable about this, because what am I going to tell my kids that I have a roommate? And that feels like I've failed in some way. So I think a lot of what we're trying to do is just show the success stories, normalize the idea, um, because it it really solves a lot of pain points at once for those that it's right for.
2: And I saw this listing that said, quiet neighborhood, fenced, fur babies welcomed. Love that. (laughs) 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 <laughs> up, to th- up to 30 pounds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Riley Gibson is president of Silverness, and we've been talking about this trend where folks, are older, our older population, folks 65 and over, maybe even younger, known as boom mates, looking to share a residence. And like everything else, there's an app for that. Riley, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel Our intern is Lennox Johnson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And speaking of our Paycheck to Paycheck series, we're going to let you know that you can still take that survey as we have more segments coming up in the next few months. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.